and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false, false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. And made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead, and Pilate said to them again, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hell, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had sat down on a hillside and had taught his followers that we are not to retaliate, to seek personal vengeance. He taught them what he showed them in this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning, God, quite honestly, we come to a passage that is quite difficult, Lord. But God, we come knowing what you did, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. And so God, I pray that you would bless this time in your word, that you would teach us that you would enable us to stand in the midst of suffering and trials and wrongs 
and glorify you in the midst. So God, I pray that you would use this passage to equip us to deepen our trust in you, to deepen our faith in you. That God, we would stand in a way that glorifies you in all our days. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, this passage, as I mentioned this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. So if you want to turn your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 5, the passage that I read to you as we began was from Mark 14 and 15. Our passage that we'll study this morning as we work through the book of Matthew and specifically are in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. It brings our attention to the issue of retaliation for for personal vengeance. And and I think we all gather this morning fully aware of how easy, perhaps you would say how natural it is to respond in in retaliation. If if you don't agree with that, if you would say, no, that's not natural, that's that's not easy to do, that's not just the easy reaction, then then I would say you probably have never volunteered in the toddler area, right? I mean, you just go spend a few minutes in there, one of those toddlers grabs another toddler's toy, and it's like UFC Bantam Ultra Lightweight goes on, right? I mean, it's it's on. Retaliation is the name of the game. You're going to give me that toy back. See, our Sunday school teachers are over there just grinning their head. Yep, yep, been there for an hour before we came into worship, and so we're talking about retaliation. Well, the problem is, is as adults, I don't know that we really grow out of this. We kind of continue in it. What, what we actually do is we just become better at kind of hiding it as, or excusing it, perhaps. And so as adults, we, we continue to kind of have a, a desire and a, a bent towards retaliation. Sometimes it's physical. We, we see it manifest in front of us. We've all either taken part in or witnessed road rage, right? Hopefully you haven't taken part in the drastic stuff, but you've probably seen it on the news or on YouTube or something, this, these drastic road rage instances. Sometimes, sometimes it's social, though, where the way we retaliate, we've learned to kind of hide it and camouflage it and excuse it as, as a way where we just kind of push aside the people that hurt us. We know how to really retaliate and how to really hurt them is to shun them. And so we kind of socially cast them aside. But then we've also learned how to retaliate verbally, haven't we? We know how to do this really well. We can retaliate and, and get vengeance verbally, especially with this wonderful creation of social media that we can just jump all over and, and retaliate very easily, very effectively to get the word out against someone that has wronged us in, in the guise of making others aware. I just wanted to make you aware, right? I'm really doing this as a public service to everyone else to make you aware of the situation and what's going on. So I think our passage this morning has much to say about this. Let's look at Matthew 5, verse 38 to 42. This is somewhat, you you might say, part one, and part two will be next week, verses 43 to 49. In 38 to 42, we're going to hear kind of the the do not, and in 39 to, I mean, I'm sorry, 43 to 49. 9, 48, we will see the do. So this week, 38 to 42, we hear this from our Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As we look at at this passage, I want to kind of set before us to to begin with, kind of like we did previously as we've walked through chapter 5 of Matthew, and specifically these these passages beginning in, in verse 17, where Christ is talking about the law and that he did not come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it and to clarify and to show us the true heart and meaning of the law. As we look at verse 38, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He, he's referencing three Old Testament passages here, the, the, what's called the lex talionis, the, the law of retaliation. The first passage he, he references, and I'm going to read these to you, is I want you to hear what the word of the Lord says in this regard, and then we'll talk about how the people were kind of twisting it and, and misusing it. 
The first passage is Exodus 21, verses 23 to 24. There we hear this, when, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Our second passage is Leviticus 24, 17 to 20, where we read this. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. In the third passage, we learn this principle, this eye for eye principle is Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. A single witness shall not suffice against a person of any crime for or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office. In those days, the judges shall inquire diligently And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So we come to Matthew 5.38, again, as I reminded you last week and the week before, it's important to remember what he said in 5.17, that he did not come to abolish the law. Jesus did not come to, to set aside the law. Rather, he's bringing clarity to it. He's fulfilling it. He's showing us what it means. He is showing that the fulfillment is actually in him, as we will talk a little more about next week. But the issue that had arisen in this time is that these laws were all meant to be used among the community of believers. But what was happening is that the people instead were just using these laws to justify their own personal vengeance. So so they were given that the context and the intent of the laws were for them to be carried out in the context of the community among judges who enacted just judgment. They were civil laws, right? But instead, they were being applied by individuals and saying, hey, listen, it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so you did this to me, and I'm going to do this to you. And there was no context of judgment. They weren't taking it before the judges. They were not taking it before the high priest. They were just enacting personal judgment. So these laws were being used for in, by individuals for individual and personal vengeance rather than being used as they were intended to maintain order within the people of God. That's why you have this counterbalance, the balance of Leviticus 9, uh, 19 to 18, that it gives the, this instruction for how the people of God are to relate to one another personally there. We, we learn how, what is our interaction to be with one another. And, and you might be able to guess, if I'd ask you, what's, what do you think is probably the overarching or the foundational command given in this passage or how the people of God are to interact with one another? I wonder what you might say. I won't ask you, but... But a good guess to throw out there would be love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, the foundational principle we see there, the, the theme of Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. In verses 17 and 18, Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, we read this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, he says. The the context, the principle, the the foundation for how we interact on a personal level is love and mercy. That we love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus, as you know, would, would call on this and call it the second greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22. To love our neighbor as ourselves. We, we read also in, in Proverbs 24, 29, where it says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. 
It is not our, our spot for vengeance. It is not our place to be people of vengeance as individuals. It is simply not. Vengeance and retaliation is not to be a part of the individual Christian life. We, we, are, we are not a people who right our own wrongs or, or mete out or d- deliver our own justice. There's two reasons this is the case in Scripture. Two reasons. One is this. Is that in Scripture we see that vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is the Lord's. It's not mine. Vengeance is the Lord's. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. God says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. We read in Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say I will repay evil, wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. In Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, we read this, the Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, who does it say enacts vengeance? The Lord. We don't read in Scripture where we're called to enact vengeance. And and I would say, and I would note here, that, that God's people are never called to take vengeance for themselves. And I would say it's because God's people are incapable of enacting vengeance and wrath in a way that is that is girded in absolute and utter holiness. God is absolutely holy, so the ways he acts are absolutely right and righteous altogether. He does no wrong. There is no sin in what he does. Later, Romans 12, 17 to 21, a, a passage we looked at back in the fall of 2020. We read this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 Paul says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do, to do good to one another and to everyone. The, the bottom line is we see that vengeance is the Lord's. Therefore, the people of God are to wait on the Lord to bring justice in his way and in his timing. So that's the first reason we're not to be characterized by vengeance. The second reason that we're not to be characterized by vengeance in Scripture is that the Lord has established government to execute justice. He's giving, given spheres of authority for his order, his economy. Romans 13, 1 to 4, two, two passages that are important. We think about this, that, that it is the government that is to execute justice. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Then those that exist have been ins- instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And we read 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14. Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There are spheres of authority in God's economy. If if this brings up questions, well, what about this and what about that? Because we live in a day as every, every, every nation has before us, I would say, a day in which it is not perfect, Government is not perfect, right? And it goes, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? I would just say go into our sermon archives and look at two sermons that we preached on uh, Romans 13, 1 through 4 back in the fall of 2020. But what we see here is that God has established government to execute justice. He has not put that authority in my hands as an individual. He has not put that authority in your hands as an individual, that we go and we execute vengeance and authority as individuals on a personal level of retaliation. We are to trust God's wisdom in giving authority to the state to enact justice. 
We trust the way he has designed things. So in light of that, in light of the Old Testament law, in light of the biblical teaching that we are not to retaliate, that justice is the Lord's, vengeance is the Lord's, that he has designed things to operate in spheres of authority purposefully and beautifully. What does Jesus teach? In, in the next three verses, 39 to 42, Jesus responds and, and provides illustrations for what is going on. He provides instruction where he says, but I say to you. Now, I, I'm just going to be really honest with you. The, these examples are quite difficult to me. This passage as a whole is rather difficult for me. I, I find it to be kind of a hard pill to swallow, just to be really honest. And, and maybe you don't. Maybe you come to this passage and you go, wow, yeah, exactly, all right. But I come to this passage and I, I go, wow, this is, this is tough. I, God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't even know, God, if I can stand up here and preach this, God, because I struggle with this. I, like, I legitimately struggle to carry this out. The other, the other stuff, when, when, when Jesus talks about about anger and, and he, he talks about lust and divorce and oaths. They're, they're difficult, but I kind of read those and go, man, that's tough, but I get it. Yeah, that's absolutely. And when I come to this passage and I hear Jesus say what he says, I, I go, man, that's tough. And God, I don't know that I fully under, I can't wrap my head around that, God. And I, I don't know if I can do that. Well, I would say the first answer is God says, you're right, you can't. Remember, yet not I, but Christ through me. It's a good reminder for this passage. Maybe, you know, it's God just reminding me, you know, there's a lot more vengeance in your heart than you're aware of. Your flesh is weak. You're so prone to want to lash out. And so prone to stand on your own rights. Oh, my rights, my rights, my rights. You're so prone to be holding on tightly to your stuff. And God says, I need to deal with that. So in verse 39, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. It, it's, it's important we think about this for a moment as it, it lays a, a framework for what he says. When he, he says do not resist, he, he's, he's talking about do not oppose or set, set yourself against or withstand. So, so don't oppose that one. Do not withstand. Do not set yourself against that thing. And he says specifically one who is evil. One who is evil. He, he, he isn't referencing Satan. He is not saving, saying the evil one as though he's referencing Satan. There are other areas in the New Testament where we see that in, in direct reference to the devil or to Satan that you're to resist the evil one. And we're called to do that. We are to resist Satan. He, he's not even saying uh, do not resist evil, right? He's not just saying this blanket evil in general. And he doesn't say don't resist evil acts, Right? He specifically says, do not resist an evil person, the evil one, the, the one who is seeking to wrong you, the one who is seeking to bring harm, the one who is seeking ill will in your life. That is who he says to not to resist here. We are to resist Satan. We are to stand opposed to evil. It's an important distinction. Is when we understand this, when we say he's not calling us to resist Satan as though we just let him have our, his way in our lives. Just, well, I'm not going to resist. You just do whatever you want to, Satan. Right? No, there is spiritual warfare. We're to put on the full armor of God. We are to stand opposed to the forces of darkness. He's not saying that we can't oppose evil as though we don't understand that there's a difference between what is right and wrong, what is evil and what is good, that it matters not if we stand against what is evil and stand for what is good. No, it does matter. We are to stand for what is good. We are to defend what is good, right? And, and, and it's not as though we, we can't resist evil actions that are come out against us, as though we're just some doormat or, or some punching bag for those who would seek to wrong us because of evil actions. We are to resist the evil person. I, I think Spurgeon gave a really concise statement. That, that clarify. He says, we are to be the anvil when bad men 
are the hammers. We're to be the anvil when, when bad men are to be the hammers. And Jesus gives us examples here to, to clarify. Some, some people would understand and interpret this and, and say that, that we, need to, we need to take in principle what Christ is teaching here and understand that he is probably speaking a little more, uh, with a little more hyperbole to really exaggerate and to, to make a point. Let's look at the examples he gives and we can make a decision on that. He gives four examples to illustrate what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall, or um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one, the one who is evil. And then he clarifies, he gives four examples. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The first example he gives is to turn the other cheek. A lot of these examples are, are sayings or statements that you hear or you say frequently, right? We're pretty familiar with them. Oh, turn the other cheek. Just turn the other cheek, right? He's referencing here this insulting slap across the face. And most, most commentators and scholars say it's not just an insulting slap across the face, but it's a backhanded slap across the face. Because he says the right cheek, and in that time, most people, when writing, they just refer to the right-handed. That a right-handed person slaps you across, backhands you across the cheek, the right cheek. And so it's not about as much this physical altercation that someone is attacking you and assailing you as much as it is an insult to you. Typically, you, it would be someone in authority over you that slaps you across the back of the face to insult you, to humiliate you, to show authority over you. We read an instance of this in, in John 18. In John 18, verses 19 to 23, Jesus, it says, is, he's being questioned by the high priest. It says, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken only openly to the world I've always taught in synagogues in the temple where all Jews come together I've said nothing in secret why do you ask me ask those who have heard me what I said to them they know what I said when he had said these things one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying is that how you answer the high priest that gentleman probably has no idea how close his life was to being vaporized I would just say he, he struck the Son of God with his hand. Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And we, we see Jesus respond. What do we not see Jesus do? He didn't retaliate. I mean, he certainly could have del delivered a fatal blow to that man. He did not. Jesus calls us here not to respond as the world responds, not to retaliating, retaliate with escalating force or insults. So the first example is turn the other cheek. The second example, he says, is give them your cloak. Give them your cloak. If, if one would sue you, he says, and take your tunic, well, give him your cloak as well. He, he's speaking of the, the court of law. When someone takes you to court for your belongings, they, they come, they, they sue you for your tunic. And he says, listen, when they're suing you for your tunic, just go ahead and take it and give it. And here's my cloak as well, if that's what you want. He, he's not speaking here. It's important to understand there's a difference. He's not speaking of the one who comes and seeks to rob him. Just outright, he's walking down the street and the guy jumps on him to take his, his tunic. And he says, oh, oh, if somebody's robbing you, it's to give your cloak as well. It's in the court of law, a suit. The third example, he says, is go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. This is one that I often would look at and go, what in the world is he talking about here? Go the extra mile. Someone would have you go one mile, then go with him two miles. I'm thinking, what? Somebody, hey, come on, let's walk for a mile. Oh, I'll just walk two miles with you. That's not what he's talking about here. What, what he's talking about here is there was a, a Roman law at the time that said that a Roman soldier could take it upon or put it upon place it upon a citizen to carry his luggage and carry his belongings his gear for a mile he had that legal right so a roman soldier could be walking down the street and they might see uh, mike west and say hey 
I'm tired. Carry my stuff the next mile. And Mike is obligated to do that. It's the law at the time. Well, Jesus says, listen, if, if you're going about your business and you're doing your thing and, and a Roman soldier walks up and says, hey, carry my stuff the next mile and, and you're thinking, no, I don't want to do that. Jesus says, actually, you know what, do it. But go ahead and go an extra mile with him. I mean, can you imagine a Roman soldier? He's like, oh, you know, and he's doing that and he gets the end of the mile and you just keep walking. And he's like, yeah, that's all. That's, the mile's up. And he says, oh, that's fine. I'll, I'll take it another, another mile for you. What? That's his third example. We actually see this same word used elsewhere in Matthew 27, 32 and Mark 15, 21. Do you know where someone was forced to carry something that was not theirs? You remember? Yeah. Simon the Siren. That same word is used. That in that instance, the Roman soldiers look and say, carry this man's cross. They compel him to carry that cross. He does it. The fourth illustration that he gives is to help the one who asks. Help the one who asks. Help the one who is in need, who comes to you and and begs, says, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He, he's echoing what is taught in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. You can look at that later. We won't read that together this morning. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. That we are to be kind to those who come and ask of us. He, he gives no extenuating circumstance here. He gives no clarifying descriptions of the individual. He doesn't say if, if someone comes and asks of you in this situation or if they come and they ask of you in, in this circumstance, then give it to them. If they've shown themselves to genuinely be in need, then help them out. He just simply says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's an illustration that we are not to withhold kindness. We're not to step back and resist giving kindness as a way of teaching them their lesson. So what Jesus is doing in this passage is he is not abolishing. He is not condemning the law's teaching on retribution. He is not condemning justice. But he makes clear that it is a civil responsibility, not a personal responsibility. It is not something that we are to act and meet out ourselves. Now, I'm just going to assume that you're like me. And at this point in my study, my little notebook, my journal that I just scribble stuff down, scribble notes and ideas... When I got to this point, my notebook says, questions. <laughs> questions. Questions arise at this point. Questions like, does this mean that self-defense is bad? Should I endure harm then rather than flee from it? Should I just take it? Should I, should I not defend myself in the court of law? Should I be a pacifist? Is he, is he saying here that I, I should just always give away all my money and my possessions without regard, with, without any discernment? I just get rid of them? Those are questions that come up for me. I think those are genuine, sincere, real questions. We look at that and go... God, is this what you mean? Are, are we supposed to be the anvil that Spurgeon described, or are we supposed to be just kind of this doormat? What, you, what are you saying? Well, here's how I worked through that and would respond looking at not only this passage, but just the whole of Scripture's testimony. Is that first there, there's wisdom in considering and remembering the overall teaching here from Jesus, the overall principle that he is giving. Well, what's the main point that Jesus is making? Well, what's the main thrust? Is what? We, I've said it several times. The main point, the, the main thrust is that the Christian is not to seek revenge through retaliation. It's not something that we 
enact personal, like this personal vengeance, personal retaliation. That's the, the main point that he is making. Now, if we understand that, here's why that's important. That's why, where we start. Is that if we take this broad principle, right? This broad principle that Jesus is saying, do not seek revenge through retaliation. If we take that broad principle, which Jesus' illustrations, they're meant to clarify, they're meant to elaborate, they're meant to complement. And if we take that broad principle and then we seek to create this specific list of rules and case laws based on this principle and illustrations, then we're going to quickly find ourselves in the place where the Pharisees and scribes found themselves with the law. That we have these, these rules and these legalistic um, codes that miss the primary guiding principle and heart of the law. But Christ is teaching this others-focused ethic that leads us to make significant sacrifices in view of what would ultimately serve others and lead them to glorify God. Instead of a selfish ethic that if something happens and something is wrongs me, then my reflex, my instant response is to retaliate and to make sure that my rights are defended. Jesus is looking and pushing us to this others-focused ethic that we see throughout the Scriptures, that we're to think first of the interest of others, right? That we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So when we do this, when we understand this, I think many of these questions are just instantly eliminated. Because we understand that his illustrations are not meant to condemn self-defense. They they tell us, they're not meant to tell us to never flee out of harm's way. They're not meant to tell us to never operate within our court system. They're not meant to tell us to give indiscriminately to those who ask. The, The purpose of this passage is to tell us that vengeance is not ours. Retaliation is not ours. It does not characterize the person of God. Personal vengeance is not to be found in me. It's not who I am as a follower of Christ. It's not who he's called me to be. It does not glorify him. We think about pacifism. We think about that whole idea, well, maybe this caused me not to be in battle. Well, again, this passage is dealing with personal vengeance. It does not speak to civil to the governmental defense of its people i appreciated what john stott said about this he said the christian is to be wholly free from revenge not only in action but in his heart as well as an office bearer in either state or church however he may find himself entrusted with the authority from god to resist evil and to punish it remember the importance of spheres authority God's economy the way he set things up he is the one who avenges vengeance is the Lord's it is not mine and he's established the government to wield the sword right we might be employed by the government for those purposes at times so how do we respond how do how do we respond to this passage how we we wrestle through it how do we respond First, I would say this, and, and again, maybe this is just me and not you, but I'm hoping that some of you are with me on this. This passage just kind of lays bare my heart. I think this passage reveals our heart. It lays it open bare for our, our, our eyes to see because it exposes whether or not my heart values my own reputation and my possessions more than I value Christ. It exposes whether I trust in my own rights and my own possessions more than I trust in the God who owns all things and who is sovereign over all things and rules all things. Who do I trust more? It exposes where my identity is found. Is my identity found in the things I have? Is my identity found in my freedoms? Or is my identity found in Christ? Do I just rest securely in Him? Do I really trust God to provide? Do I really trust him to be good to me? Do I really trust that he is compassionate to me? Do I really trust that he will act in justice at the right time, in the right way? Do I really trust that? That's what this passage exposes in my heart, is that I want to take things into my own hands. I want to respond in a way that I rule in this moment. And this is how it should work, as though I'm all wise. And I know what should happen. I know what needs to happen in every situation. That's God's place. That is not my place. 
There's three passages that I, I think undergird how we respond to this. How do we respond in these instances? Here, here's the first one is, is the passage that Mark read in Lamentations 3, 28 to 32. We, we read this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let, let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. Why? What did we hear? For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. A second passage I think is relevant to that is this. is what we read in Romans 12, 17. Remember? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then in verse 19, we, we heard, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And, and a third passage I would say that speaks to this, and how do we respond in these instances when someone wrongs us, is Galatians 5, to 23, the fruit of the Spirit. You've heard that often, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and joy Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The the manifestation of God's presence in our life is characterized by those things. So what does that mean and how I respond? Well, we wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord, trusting His sovereignty, His wisdom, His goodness. And Lamentations teaches us that. Second, we, we ask God to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives in ways that are absolutely contrary to our own strength, our own fleshly response. Instead, in those situations, we ask God to help us to show love, help us, God, to show patience, help us to show kindness, help us to show goodness, help us to show gentleness, and help us to show self-control. That's hard. I can't do it. Yet not I, but Christ through me. Third, it means we look to God alone, the one who will bring justice by his means and in his timing. See, if you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever, you don't follow Christ. This this passage seems just radical. Like, there's no way. If someone comes and does something like that, there's no way. But, but I would testify to you and I would say to you this, that Jesus' teaching here was absolutely, fully, and beautifully demonstrated by him. It was shown by him. It's what we read to begin with so that when Jesus was betrayed, when he was arrested, when he was falsely accused, unjustly sentenced, shamefully mocked, cruelly beaten, and brutally crucified. Jesus did this. He showed us what it looks like. Why? <laughs> Unbeliever, why would he do this? Why? why? Why would the one who came and said, I am the Messiah, I am the chosen one, I am the Son of God, why would he do that? 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You know why? So that he might bring us to God. That's beautiful. <laughs> why would he do that? So that he might bring us to God. Romans 5.8 says that God shows us his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he do that? Why would he sit and be wrongfully accused? Why would he listen to all the threats? Why would he take the beatings when they put something over his head and just beat him and strike him? Why would he sit before the high priest, the great high priest standing before or sitting before a man, a high priest? He sits before him and he says something. The guard slaps him across the face. Why would he just sit there and take it? So that he might bring us to God. (laughs) Man, 
Our God is awesome. Our God is awesome. Is this teaching too hard? It's hard to say that. Reading what we read in Mark. It's hard to say that knowing what Christ did. Listen, unbeliever, I want you to know this morning. That in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion, in the midst of you standing opposed to God, you may not feel like, you may not say, I don't stand opposed to God. You do. You do. You pursue the things of the world and things of your own flesh, your own heart, not the things of God. In the midst of all that, Scripture says that God demonstrated His love by sending Christ to die for you. Not just to teach, not just to heal, to die. To die. To suffer, to be humiliated, to be beaten, to die. But I testify to you that He is no longer dead. He rose from the grave triumphantly over death. So that we as believers look and say, Death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? We fear not death as we serve the living God. And that risen Christ who defeated death, who went through all of that so that you might be brought to God, that God, so that whoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. The teaching of Scripture is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, I would appeal to you, I would beg of you, I would encourage you, I would challenge you however you want to say it. Repent of your sins, turn from your sins and turn to Christ in faith, trusting him as Lord today. Now believer, this is difficult. This is difficult. Yet not I, but Christ through me. It's hard to wrap our heads around it. I, I, I told the Lord earlier, I, I can't I, I can't. I, I know I can't do this on my own. I just can't. In the instance that this comes and this meets me, I know that my fleshly response, my knee-jerk response is going to be retaliation. It's going to be vengeance. And so I want to leave you with 1 Peter 2, 19 to 25. We read this, Jesus talking, or Peter talking about the suffering. Suffering for the glory of God and the good of others in the midst of someone in authority oppressing you. He says this, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin or beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Perhaps that's the heart of the issue right there. That if we are daily entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, then the way we respond is radically different than, we than when we entrust ourselves to our own stuff and our own ability and our own strength and our own rights. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We're going to close our time this morning observing the Lord's Supper. Our deacons, I want to invite the deacons to come forward and begin making preparations. And I know really no better way to close this sermon than to observe the Lord's Supper and to remember and celebrate what Christ did on our behalf. To celebrate the one who 
was reviled and did not revile in return the one who suffered for us. If you're here, you're visiting, you're a believer, you walk in faith with Christ, we welcome you to this table. This is not the Grace Baptist table, as though we have rights over it. This is something the Lord established. We did not establish this. Christ established this. And he's called us as believers to gather together and to remember what he did, to celebrate what he did. And so we invite you to partake. If you're here as, as an unbeliever or parents, if you have children who are unbelievers, we ask you to allow the elements to pass by. We trust your judgment and wisdom in that. And as you do, consider what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. God, for your example. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us, indwelling us, strengthening us by your grace to be able to live out the things you've called us to live. God, we can't do it on our own. We're confronted with that every week in the Sermon on the Mount. We're confronted every week that, God, we fail and we sin. Oh, God, you are gracious and you forgive. So we rest in that today. God, please bless this time. Bless this meal as we take of it together and we remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross on our behalf. God, would you bless this time together? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.